You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. We do know that prevention works. There have been lots and lots of studies that document if you stop smoking, you're going to live a longer life. If you eat a better diet, you're going to be healthier and hopefully have less chronic disease, etc. Public health is largely invisible to most people. You go to your faucet in the morning, you turn on the tap, you get a glass of water, and you just think that that water is going to be free from carcinogens, it's going to be safe. And those are the kinds of things, frankly, that public health does. We do things that keep people safe, that protect people, etc. But it is largely invisible. And so the extent to which people want to pay for those kinds of things, I think, is diminished. We really want to know what you value. Do you really value avoiding getting on an additional medication? Or do you value avoiding surgery or procedure? But it, it is a little bit of a change. And I think some patients might not be comfortable with it. But what we're finding in general is that most people really want to participate and be fully informed and have, in fact, strong feelings uh, that they might not have shared with their provider had they not been invited to do so. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 81, Caring for Community, airing for the first time on March 31st, 2013. From raising readers to raising awareness for colorectal cancer, Maine has many innovative wellness programs created with the health of the community in mind. Learn more through our discussions with Deborah Dietrich, Senior Vice President of Community Health Education at Maine Health, and Dr. Kathleen Fairfield of the Maine Medical Center Shared Decision-Making Program. When I began family medicine training at the Maine Medical Center in 1996, our patient information was kept in paper charts. Finding information in these charts was challenging, to say the least. Many of our patients had been coming to the family medicine clinic for many, many years. Valiant attempts were made to keep medications, vital statistics, and history up to date, but the system had multiple failings. This contributed to a less than optimal patient care experience. Fortunately, we've moved into the modern age, and electronic patient information is now readily available at the Maine Medical Center and in most medical settings across the state. I've always liked the idea of systems. Medicine is a challenging field requiring thoughtfulness and tenacity on the part of its practitioners. We are called upon to create individualized plans for our patients while simultaneously understanding the health of the family, community, and population. Having systems in place enables us to practice medicine more efficiently. I admit, systems can sometimes have their pitfalls. Patients are, after all, individuals. There is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to patients. But systems provide us with a start. They are a foundation upon which we can build a better patient experience. This week on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, we speak with Deb Dietrich and with Dr. Kathleen Fairfield. These individuals have been practicing public health in Maine for many years and are doing so in a very innovative way. 
Practitioners like these enable us to put better systems in place, from encouraging our pediatric patients to read to championing shared decision-making about colon cancer between patients and their providers. Practitioners like Deb Dietrich and Dr. Kathleen Fairfield help us improve the care of patients in Maine. We have come a long way since my experience with paper charts in 1996. It's an exciting time to be caring for our community. Thank you for joining us today. As a family physician and traditional Chinese medicine practitioner for many years, I've learned a few things along the way, and I like to write about these on a regular basis. If you're a radio listener, you can read some of my weekly readings on bountiful-blog.com and read some of the blog posts in between, and let me know what you think. I think we can start a conversation that could be helpful for building a better world. That's bountiful-blog.com. When life and work intersect, I believe is when we can get sort of the greatest um, amount of energy behind our efforts in this world. And Deb Dietrich is an example of how my life and my work intersect. Um, Deb and I are good friends and also have worked together, worked together for more than a decade, in fact, at Maine Health. Deborah is the Senior Vice President of Community Health at Maine Health and also a founding member of the Maine Public Health Association. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Very good. So you actually were one of the people who got me into public health. I remember as a young resident um, in family medicine at Maine Medical Center coming to talk to you. And you had this thing called an MPH, which at the time wasn't really um, a degree that a lot of people were thinking about, at least not doctors at that time. Why did you decide to go into public health? Um, I think because I wanted to uh, make a difference. Um, Before I went into public health, I had a totally different career that just wasn't as satisfying from a perspective of, you know, important social issues. I was always very active on political issues in college, um, even in high school. And um, public health just interested me. I thought about medicine for a while, but it seemed too focused. Um, I wanted to work uh, on a grander scale, I think. And so I was very interested in um, sort of the big issues, um, helping people get healthier. Originally, you're not from Maine. I am not from Maine. I am from away. Um, I'm actually from Michigan um, and grew up there as the daughter of a pediatrician and um, moved uh, to Houston after graduate school, um, was there for a couple of years, and had an opportunity to move to Maine, a place that I had been for exactly one day before (laughs) I got a job offer to come here. And the one day I had been here, I thought it was the most beautiful place in the world. I had never been in a place that was more beautiful than this. And I thought, wow, if I had the chance to live there someday, I would take it in a minute. And so I actually got a job offer and moved here uh, in 1980. Long time ago. <laughs> well, actually, that was that was three years after I moved here in 77. So mm. it's it feels like it was just yesterday. Mm. And now you're raising your son. Yep. I have a 15-year-old son uh, who is adopted. Um, and he is in high school now, obviously. And um, it's a great place, obviously, to raise a family and just to be. 
What was your career path before you went into public health? Um, well, actually, I was in advertising. Um, I was an art director and uh, have um, spent many years as a professional illustrator, um, thought about going into medical illustration, um, actually got into one of the two programs at the time um, at the University of Michigan, and then decided that that just wasn't for me. It wasn't working on that grand scale. Um, and so I envisioned my life sitting over a board illustrating hearts and lungs and that sort of thing. And um, it just didn't have quite the appeal uh, that public health had. It seems to me as though some of this work that you did in advertising and also with um, visual arts could have an impact on your ability to communicate effectively some of the public health messages that you have um, approached in the last few decades. That is hitting the nail on the head. Um, that's precisely why I went into public health, because I think there are ways of communicating with people um, that are better than others. I think having a sense of um, how you message, how you approach people, even what kinds of um, images and um, uh approaches um, that you take are really, really important. And so a lot of the work that I have done over the years has really been to try to combine all of these elements, both visual, um, sort of thematic elements, um, engaging messages, uh, et cetera, to move health behavior, oftentimes at an individual level or at a community level. We've talked about public health before with some of our other guests, but for people who are listening who may not be familiar with the idea of public health, can you describe it for us? The best way that I uh, uh, describe public health is a little story that I actually heard in graduate school, and it goes like this. Um, there once was a river, um, a very busy river, um, with a lot of rocks and um, torrents, etc. And there were a lot of people in the river who were drowning, thrashing about, um, just um, were being carried down the river and, and couldn't seem to save themselves. And the ambulances came, the doctors came, the nurses came to the bottom of the river, and they were incredibly busy trying to pull people out. Um, a lot of people died. Some people were pulled out and resuscitated on the shore. But the point of the story is that they were so busy pulling people out of the river, they never had time to go upstream to see who was putting them in in the first place. And in public health, it's all about going upstream. It's all about uh, making sure that people don't fall into that river, that they have medical care, they have primary care, um, they have um, ways of taking care of themselves and their families, they have clean air, clean water, um, good education, et cetera, immunizations, all the things that prevent people from getting into that river in the first place. My experience with public health is that it can be somewhat thankless at times because we have right now such a financially driven and probably already always have to some extent financially driven healthcare system and people will say well we know that if you can prevent a second heart attack you're going to save x dollars but sometimes it can be difficult to quantify the upstream medicine what are your thoughts on that? Well, it can be. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we do know that prevention works. Um, there have been lots and lots of studies that document if you stop smoking, you're going to live a longer life. If you eat a better diet, um, you're going to be healthier and hopefully have less chronic disease, et cetera. Um, but what happens is that public health, are, and, and I think one of the problems here is that public health is largely invisible to most people. You go to your faucet in the morning, you turn on the tap, you get a glass of water, and 
you just think that that water is going to be um, free from carcinogens. It's going to be, uh, you can drink it. It's going to be safe. Um, when you go to um, uh, a supermarket and you buy fruits and vegetables or food, you think that that food is going to be safe and somebody has inspected it. Um, and those are the kinds of things, frankly, that public health does. We do things that keep people safe, that protect people, et cetera. But it is largely invisible. And so the extent to which people want to pay for those kinds of things, I think, is diminished. Especially since right now um, we seem to be in a sort of an employer insurance payment situation. So if you have an employee who may or may not be with you for a very long time, it's possible you don't want to pay for things that are going to happen once they stop working for you. So how do you approach that issue? Well, I think for all of us, we need to work together and agree upon the things that really do keep people healthy. And so employers, for the most part, I think now agree that things like uh, helping their employees stop smoking or to exercise on a regular basis is actually a good thing for society in addition to their own employees. And so many more employers are investing in these kinds of things. So if you work for one company and you go to work for another company, those kinds of things are still going to be um, available to the vast majority of the population. Um, and it's also one of the reasons that we need to invest in public policies that can help everyone. So things like smoking bans, um, things like um, uh, efforts to keep the air clean or the water clean, et cetera. Everyone needs to invest in those. They float everyone's boat, so to speak, and keep everyone healthy. It's one of the reasons that in public health we work at a policy level, we work at an individual level, and we work at a community level. All those things really have to be knitted together. What are some of the initiatives that you've been involved in um, through Maine Health or through some of the work that you've done in other public health spheres in Maine? Well, the two big ones um, and the two big predictors of whether or not we're going to be sick or um, have chronic disease, et cetera, are tobacco and obesity. And so those are the two areas that I think everyone agrees um, we do have problems here in Maine um, with both of these issues. Um, we've done a lot of work on both of them, but we have a long way to go. If we can stop people from smoking in the first place, um, we know they're going to live healthier lives. Um, and certainly for someone who does smoke, um, helping them to quit and giving them the tools and the resources they need to do that is incredibly important. Um, and on the obesity side, I think we've learned that it's not just about obesity and overweight. It's really about healthy eating and active living. So eating a healthy diet and getting enough exercise. And again, um, there's a lot of research on both of these issues. To um, there's, there's no question that they both have a lot to do with our uh, overall health. But one of the other things that I often talk about, frankly, in addition to these issues that are um, everybody knows are related to health, are issues that may not be quite so apparent, but have a lot to do with how healthy we are. And those are things like poverty and education. Um, those are the two strongest predictors of how healthy we are going to be, whether we have a job, whether we have sufficient income, um, and also to a certain ex a large extent, how um, much education we have. 
People who finish high school are much likely to be healthier than people who have only finished sixth grade. Um, people who live below the poverty line are much likely, more likely to be unhealthy than people who have, who live, who have a, a living wage. Um, so all of these things are important predictors of health. So in in public health, we have a very, very broad view of what it takes to be healthy. It's not just about doctors and hospitals, although that's really important to have a place to go when we're sick. It's also about our behavior, whether we smoke or whether we eat junk food or fresh fruits and vegetables, and also um, continuing education and supporting that, and also supporting programs that can help lift people out of poverty. When you and I met not so long ago, you were telling me an interesting and startling um, statistic about the number of children that now are falling within the main care system mm -hmm. and how that's risen over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that. Um, it is a real statistic, and it's a very troubling statistic. Um, we are... Um, we being Maine Health are doing a lot in the area of early childhood um, health education, et cetera, as are many other organizations around the state. And these are children or kids between the ages of birth and five. Um, and last year, 2012, in Maine, almost three quarters of children in that age range between birth and five were enrolled in the Maine Care Program, which is a very in my view, startling statistic, as you just mentioned. And basically, it says that these are kids who are living in low-income households who may not have um, access to healthy food, who may not have access to clean air, um, who may not have access to all of the things that are needed to create healthy uh, kids and kids who are ready to go to kindergarten, et cetera. So it's one of the reasons that there is now a lot of focus here in Maine on that particular age group in providing child care, high quality child care to kids, um, in providing uh, oral health and oral health education, in providing um, health education, uh, making sure that kids uh, get a healthy diet, um, have clean water to drink, et cetera. We'll return to our interview in a moment. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. So many times we get sucked into routines and schedules, and we forget that each day is truly a fresh start. You just ended a dismal day at the office and can't imagine having to do it all over again. Stop. Change your perspective. Tomorrow is a brand new day. It's an opportunity to do things differently, to get to the things you may have been putting off for weeks. Each day gives us the ability to see things differently and open up our minds to new possibilities. It's a chance to discover something new or find an approach to make an old way of doing something better, more efficient. It doesn't have to be a profound change each day. Incremental changes or discoveries are all you need to make an impact. Maybe today you decide to run instead of walk, or drink water instead of soda, or finish that project instead of pushing it down the list. All small changes are events, but all have an impact. Each day is an opportunity to grow and learn to change and to create, to make an impact. So what is your fresh start today? 
Let's get that fresh start today. Contact Booth, Maine at 774-4030. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. In Maine, we have an issue with access to dental care. And From the First Tooth is a program that Maine Health has gotten behind to address that issue from early on. Mm-hmm. Why does it matter that we have good dental care from our earliest years? Well, um, the s- simple answer to that question is that baby teeth are taking the place of permanent teeth. And so it's really important for parents and even small children to learn how to take care of their baby teeth because they're placeholders for those permanent teeth. And decay, um, abscesses, other problems can really um, affect oral health in later years, not only as kids, but as adults. So it's really important to prevent, again, going upstream that concept, um, baby teeth from the time a child has his or her first tooth. So this is another initiative where a very forward-thinking foundation uh, came to us and said, we know this is a huge problem in the state of Maine, and we'd like to do something about it. And so uh, several years ago, um, a program was developed that's now called From the First Tooth, which is really about taking your child again to that well-child visit um, at your doctor's office. The doctor or the nurse or another person on the team uh, will look at the child's teeth very quickly and um, no pain, no instruments being used, and then apply something called a fluoride varnish to the child's teeth, which is really just a very thin protective coating of fluoride. It's colorless. It's odorless, it doesn't hurt the child, um, but it puts a kind of protective shield around that child's teeth, whether it's one tooth or more baby teeth. And that fluoride application will actually protect the child's tooth uh, for many months. The ideal is to have two of those fluoride applications every year um, during a well-child visit or other visit to the child's physician. And again, we also recommend that a child see a dentist, hopefully by age one, if that's possible. But as you just mentioned, Dr. Lisa, um, in some areas of the state, we don't have dentists who are able to see. First of all, we may not have dentists at all in certain areas of the state. And secondly, not all dentists uh, will see children at the age of one or even two. And so this is kind of a compromise. We're trying to provide some protection for these child's uh, teeth, for these children, um, so that when they do get to their first dental visit, they don't have decay and they don't have dental problems. You've also worked with an organization that um, is associated with Maine but does work outside of Maine called Convit Santi. What's that all about and why? Yeah, um, a great question. Um, Combat Sante. Oh, sorry, (laughs) Sante. Sante um, is an amazing organization um, headed by an amazing person, um, Dr. Nate Nickerson. Um, 
the focus of Combat Santé is to help rebuild and strengthen the healthcare system in northern Haiti, in particular in a community called Cap Haitian. And many people from Maine and actually other parts of the country, physicians, nurses, um, not only healthcare workers, but others too, um, volunteer their time to go to CAP, as it's referred to, and and actually teach um, some of the physicians, the nurses, the people who work uh, in the public health system there. The public health system in Haiti is run by the government, um, and there is a public hospital in CAP Haitian where many of the folks from here go to work uh, for a period of time. I've had the honor of going to CAP on a couple of occasions. Uh, it's quite an amazing place, and the people who are working in the healthcare system there are incredibly committed, um, working under the most challenging conditions that you could ever imagine. Um, so it's quite an organization, and I would certainly commend to all of your listeners that um, there's a website, um, uh, www.combatsante.org, um, to hear and see more about it. Uh, it's a, a fantastic um, investment, again, in global health in one of the most impoverished nations in the world. Why did people from Maine decide that they cared about people from Haiti? Well, I think there's some affinity. Um, Maine is a very poor rural state. Um, we have limited access to resources. Um, until the last several years, um, you know, we haven't had a public health school here. Um, we do now have two public health programs uh, in Maine. And I think there was a recognition that, um, and, and by the way, there were some individuals here uh, going back um, uh, many years, Dr. Mike Taylor being one of those, um, who got connected to CAP and some of the folks there. And, and that has been built upon uh, over the years. And now there's a very strong relationship. Um, many physicians here travel to CAP maybe a couple of times a year, um, engaged in projects, uh, et cetera. And uh, it has simply built up. Um, there's a relationship between the city of Portland and CAP Haitian. Um, and I think a recognition that um, we need to lift ourselves out of poverty, that no one is going to do that for us. How can people find out about the work that Maine Health is doing in the area of community health? Probably the best thing is to go to our website, um, www.mainehealth.org. Um, there is information um, and links to the Raising Readers program, to the From the First Tooth program, and uh, our work in tobacco, which um, again, focuses on helping people to quit smoking, uh, for the most part, and obesity. And actually, each of these initiatives have their own websites, and I don't know if you want me to <laughs> go through all of those, but one of the programs that I, uh, we've talked about a little bit before um, on obesity prevention, the really going upstream, is called Let's Go. Um, and that also has its own website at www.letsgo.org. Um, the now famous 5210 mantra. Um, uh, and you'll find lots more information there. And for our listeners who um, are with us on a regular basis, our interview with Dr. Michael Dedekian actually is all about Let's Go. So right. you can go back to the podcast on iTunes and listen to that show if you haven't had a chance. Right. Well, 
Deb, I really want to thank you for, um, well, first of all, for being my friend, for inspiring me to go into public health and for being a mentor um, when I worked at Maine Health for all those years, but also for the work that you've done for the state of Maine over the last, dare I say, decades. Um, decades with an S, that de- would be appropriate. Decades. <laughs> um, and, and most recently as the Senior Vice President of Community Health at Maine Health. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Lisa, and I will say that you too have been an inspiration um, just in terms of your career over the years, um, becoming a much more highly skilled communicator about health and medical issues. Um, So kudos to you. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind body and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, the Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com or call 207-774-2196 and get started with the Body Architect today and by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207 Seven eight one nine zero seven seven. In the studio with us today, we have Dr. Kathleen Fairfield, who is not only a medical doctor, but also a, has a doctorate in public health and is the Associate Chief of Medicine and a clinical investigator at Maine Medical Center. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Kathleen, you and I have known each other for a while. Yeah. We've been sort of following each other as we've gone through our medical education. And I also have a background in public health, but you went and got a doctorate in public health. Why did you do that? Well, the group I was working with at the time, I was working on Nurses Health Study, and um, we were um, doing a lot of quantitative work, and I felt like I wanted to make sure I really understood the methods. And um, also there was other work that was going on around me, and it allowed me more time to explore some of the other dimensions of public health. Um, At that time, I actually was thinking more about research than public health practice, but I do a little of both now in some ways. And you also do clinical medicine. Yes. So what do you do for clinical medicine? Uh, so I'm a primary care general internist at Maine Medical Center in the in the clinics, and I have a small patient panel, and I also supervise residents in international clinic. And what does international clinic look like? Uh, this is a once-a-week clinic where um, we do new intake for new refugees who are entering our system of health care in Portland. Um, we link with Catholic charities in the public health uh, system. So the public health nurses bring the patients in um, and we do comprehensive new intake visits and uh, try to assess their health needs and get them established in care in the medical clinic uh, with partnering with our residency program. You've been able to marry what um, I think most people would be considered two very different worlds, research and also clinical practice or taking care of patients. Um, how has that worked in your own life? 
uh, it's busy, and uh, like uh, like a lot of people who uh, like you, a lot of people who do uh, multiple things, they inform each other. And so I think um, being a researcher makes me a better doctor, and being a physician makes me a better researcher. And um, sometimes they do a little bit more of one or a little bit more of another. Um, patient care always takes precedence, as you know. Somebody uh, needs something, uh, and that's the great part about the research that I do, uh, it doesn't usually involve human subjects so, um, that are sitting in front of me, so I can set it down uh, when I need to. So what is your research right now? So two major tracks. Um, one um, has to do with shared decision making and uh, using tools to help patients make better decisions that are aligned with their own preferences and values, and also fully informed about the risks and the benefits. Uh, and the other piece is uh, using large data sets, uh, including SEER Medicare, which is a nationally available uh, cancer data set, um, to look at patterns of care. And this is the field of health services research where we're trying to make sure that people are getting care that's um, consistent across systems and um, minimizing disparities and differences in health care by region and race and ethnicity and gender. This, for people who are listening um, who don't have much of a background in research or statistics or some of the things that you're talking about, but they do, of course, have health needs. How would the research that you're doing be relevant to them? So the research that we do in um, shared decision-making probably feels the most uh, kind of proximal for patients. Um, and uh, it actually really crosses over into quality improvement as well, where, um, for example, we currently have a grant from Maine Cancer Foundation to do work with shared decision-making around colorectal cancer screening choices. So in the practices, um, some people have done work with shared decision-making and asking patients about their preferences and values, mostly at the point of care when the patient's sitting in front of you, which is a really nice way to do it because there can be a, a nice back and forth. But as you know, um, time with the, directly with the patient in the office is really tight already. So much to counsel them about in terms of prevention and their current medications and other, you know, uh, other things, you, uh, they, questions that they have that we often run out of time and it gets deferred to the next visit. So the model that we're, we're trying out is to do, um, look at our patients when they're not sitting in front of us, to identify the patients who have need, for example, are unscreened for colorectal cancer screening or, or overdue, and, um, and to send them a decision aid, which is a video tool and a booklet, so that they can think about uh, their choices for colorectal cancer screening, uh, including being un including choosing to uh, in an informed way to, to not pursue screening or to pursue one type of screening over another. Then we have uh, someone from our office or one of the offices we're working with call them, so an RN or a medical assistant call them and uh, do decision support. So help them understand, uh, answer questions, help them understand their options, and, and then refer them uh, for screening as appropriate. So it actually, um, for patients, They've had a chance to look at decision aids, uh, process them, think about them with their healthcare team, and then uh, make a better decision. So it's it's pretty direct in that in that way. The idea of shared decision making um, is is kind of counter to the way medicine has been for quite a long time, where it was a bit more top down, where somebody would come in and say, "This is what I think. This is what I think you should do." Um, now we're saying. Here's some information. Um, this is how this impacts your quality of life. Um, 
And, and you're really attempting as the physician or healthcare provider to have a dialogue with the patient and, and make this decision together. Yes, I, I think it is, it is a little bit of a paradigm shift. And I think, I think a lot of excellent uh, providers, um, physicians, and other uh, caregivers have been doing it for a long time. This is, it's a little bit more um, explicit, I think, in some ways of saying to the patient, um, we really want to know what you value. Do you really value avoiding getting on an additional medication? Or do you value avoiding surgery or procedure? and help them reflect on their own values and their preferences. Some situations are very clear. Um, the pa- a patient can pursue surgery, f- say for a knee replacement, or spend more um, energy doing uh, physical therapy and being willing to take anti-inflammatory medications, for example. And other decisions might be something like screening where you revisit it. Uh, annually, for example, or every 10 years in the case of some colorectal cancer screening choices. But it it is a little bit of a change, and I think some patients might not be comfortable with it, but what we're finding in general is that most people really want to participate and be fully informed and have, in fact, strong feelings uh, that they might not have shared with their provider had they not been invited to do so. Why colorectal cancer? Colorectal cancer we chose because it's a good example of... uh, uh, it's a uh, it's a malignancy that we can screen for and make a difference. So we can reduce colorectal cancer deaths by screening for for it and taking out polyps that uh, might later uh, transform into malignancy. Um, we we have one of the lower rates of colorectal cancer screening uh, compared with some other screening tests like mammography or cervical cancer screening partly because the tests are unacceptable to a lot of patients. They're not willing to undergo a colonoscopy. As you know, they're, uh, the prep uh, and the procedure itself are, um, are, are, you know, feel more um, invasive, for example, to a patient. And um, we thought there was an opportunity there to provide um, education to patients about uh, what the tests are, why we're recommending them, why they might um, choose one over the other, and to be more informed, particularly about that choice. How big a problem is colorectal cancer? Colorectal cancer is the third most common malignancy for both men and women. And is this something that we've seen um, rising the rate of colorectal cancer over time? Uh, I actually think it's been fairly constant. But it's something clearly that we need to be paying attention to because it's, it causes death. Yes, yeah, so it's one of the. It is. It's an important malignancy again because it's, it's the third most common. Um, yeah, uh, we also have an opportunity because if it's if we um, diagnose polyps, we can take them out and prevent a person from actually getting the malignancy. Or if we diagnose it as, at an early stage, it's it's curable uh, through treatment. Versus later stage tumors are much harder to cure, and it becomes a disease management situation. What are some of the responses that people have had when asked to participate in this shared decision making project? Um, we've had uh, a whole range of, of responses, and some um, patients haven't wanted to look at the materials that we've uh, sent them. They would rather get information directly from their physician. Uh, we've had um, some people look at it and say they, um, they really appreciate it. And they've had some questions when they get their, uh, the phone call. And they um, have, in fact, chosen to be screened when before they were reluctant to be screened. Uh, we've had patients choose um, a simpler stool test that they can do at home and mail in um, called um, high-sensitivity stool testing. And, in fact, not realizing that that was an option. They had only been offered colonoscopy before. 
And so um, they do have to understand that if the stool test is positive, they then need to go on to colonoscopy. And so we um, are making sure that people are fully informed about their choices. We've had um, a lot of uh, people say they, they really appreciate the information and the chance to participate in their care. And as a primary care provider yourself, have you been able to use this information on shared decision making in your own practice? Yeah, so we've done, um, Maine Health has been part of a grant um, that uh, Neil, Dr. Neil Corson and myself have had uh, and working on through, uh, throughout the Maine Health System with many practices, um, trying to engage primary care practices in shared decision making and uh, along with their patients. So we've been working on this where we can uh, we can refer patients, for example, to the Maine Health Learning Resource Centers to view it, uh, one of the decision aids about a variety of conditions, and then they come back to their next appointment and talk about it. That's different than the way I described that we're doing now through the Maine Cancer Foundation grant where we're mailing out materials. We're also doing a pilot in a medical clinic at Maine Medical Center where we're using an iPad and doing some point-of-care decision aids where a physician or a nurse practitioner at, at during the office visit can say, hey, would you like to look at a decision aid right now uh, after your visit? And um, so we're trying to make it accessible to patients in a lot of different ways, and, and I've referred my patients through all, all three of those uh, ways of trying to get uh, the materials to patients when they need it and when they're ready for it. We'll return to our interview in a minute. But first, let's take some time to explore the connection between health and wealth something that I firmly believe in and have tried to promote on this show. Joining us is my friend and personal financial advisor, Tom Shepard. The healthiest communities are the ones that have figured out how to develop new and unique structures to support needs and wants at many different levels. When we look at a healthy school, it supports the needs of the individual, the classroom, the building, the district, the community, and therefore, the family as a whole. Building a plan for financial health and well-being is the same. What we can learn from managing a portfolio of assets is that sometimes one part of the plan needs to address the risk that allows another part to pursue opportunity. This three-step dance of preserve, manage, and pursue is the core of good design. If you are part of an organization that is struggling with how best to evolve to a better place, we can help. Send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmain.com and we'll help your organization learn how to evolve. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. And you 
you described this decision aid. So what, what would that look like to a patient? So the decision, their decision aids can take a lot of different forms. They can be pencil and paper. They can be um, um, uh, something that they read on a computer, for example. The ones that we're using are uh, created by the Informed Medical Decisions Foundation in Boston. It's a foundation I've been uh, working with as a medical editor for many years. They uh, are very high-quality decision aids. They're balanced. They have a lot of patient vignettes. They have a lot of um, pictograms to show patients um, about uh, risk use, uh, using um, images to help them uh, better understand how what their benefits and risks are. And they um, also have a booklet with them so patients who have low literacy can actually watch the video instead of looking at the booklet. Some patients prefer to read to get information and some would do both. Has literacy been a barrier that has been recognized? Yes, great question. L literacy is a huge barrier. Um, health literacy in the United States is, is very low in general and uh, certainly is low in Maine. Um, and having materials that are at the right um, reading level, uh, such as a, a, about sixth grade is I, I think what the, the materials that we have, um, that's important. But also um, health literacy in general is, is low and I think there's a lot of myth in general to out there and uh, not everyone has access to high quality health information. We think it's particularly important that it's unbiased. It doesn't feel like they're being, uh, the patients are being uh, sold anything or that anybody has any financial benefit from using these tools. It really is to get the patient to make the very best decision for them. What has the response from physicians been? The physician response has been great, um, including, you know, again, we, we work in teams and uh, generally now, and so I think the teams have, have enjoyed uh, the process of learning about shared decision-making. Um, we have especially found that our process of mailing the decision aids outside of the office visit has been well received by the teams because that way when the provider sits down with the patient next time, the patient's already seen the material and kind of processed it and they can have a better discussion about the choices that the patient has um, at that time. Um, it's hard to find it, uh, the right time to give the information to the patient. You know, ideally it might be right before the office visit, but as you can imagine, there are a lot of logistics that make that very hard to do. Does it enable patients to also spend more time researching a given topic before they go in and visit with their doctor? I think so. I think a lot of patients have been coming more informed with materials they may be found on the internet about um, certain things they might want to try or they're thinking about. Um, this is a chance, I think, to uh, help patients prepare, particularly around things like screening that they, they might not have realized the physician was going to bring up during the visit, or particularly in the case of colorectal cancer, as we were saying, um, the screening tests seem unacceptable to some patients. And so it gives them a chance to think more about what that uh, might be like and then ask questions that are uh, a little bit more targeted for their provider. The type of medicine that you've gone into where you're doing um, clinical medicine or seeing patients and also research-based medicine and public health um, related, it, it isn't the type of medicine that most little kids think about when they're thinking, what do I want to be when I grow up? When you were younger, did you have any sense that this might be the direction you'd go in? No, I uh, I, I didn't. I, in fact, I, I wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> but when I started thinking about medicine as a career, uh, I think I, I, I thought about primary care, family medicine, because I really wanted to be sort of the regular physician that had a long-standing relationship with patients 
that I could get to know them and uh, uh, take care of them over time and have a trusting relationship. Um, that's been great. Uh, you know, as, as you know, face-to-face um, -face patient care is wonderful and very rewarding, but sometimes you wish that you had better information for patients or that some of the barriers to getting care done would would go away. And so that's the wonderful thing about doing research, too, is that sometimes uh, you feel like you can solve problems that um, come up in everyday patient care and maybe make things a little bit better. So you can get a little bit of distance from some of the in-the-trenches work that you're doing. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's uh, rewarding to do both. And the challenge in research always is feeling like uh, it's it's quite slow, and sometimes translating findings into actual clinical practice takes much longer than anyone would ever think. Kathleen, you and I have been in medicine for roughly the same amount of time, and we've seen a lot of changes. I yes. think when I first came into medicine, um, there were a lot more independent physicians and a lot fewer that were employed by healthcare organizations. Um, and there, I think people are really seriously considering whether medicine is a good career path for them. What would you say to somebody who is thinking about going into medical school? I think, I think medicine is, uh, is still a wonderful career path in that, um, you know, most people work hard in their jobs, uh, regardless of what they do. It's nice to go home at the end of the day and think that you helped people, even if you provided someone with some comfort and not necessarily a, a big cure, which, as you know, doesn't happen um, that often, in, particularly in primary care. I think, um, I think that a lot of the changes in medicine have to do with standardization, which is a really good thing, because uh, it, we don't want to be practicing the kind of medicine that, that feels too artful and too uh, unique. I think it's uh, good and comforting for patients to get the same answer from one provider that they would get from the other provider. And I think that we're also doing a better job with integration, where all members of the care team are, are participating, communicating with each other. And I'm not talking about just primary care and specialists either, but our nursing colleagues and physical therapy and um, mental health, et cetera. So I, I feel like uh, we're moving toward a more cohesive model that um, makes a lot of sense. I think some of the, um, and I, I hope that patients perceive that as well. You have a daughter who's the same age as my daughter, Sophie, 12. Would you suggest that she be a doctor if she wanted to? Uh, well, it turns out she wants to be a veterinarian. <laughs> so, uh, I, I do think that I do think for women in medicine, it's a it's a really interesting question um, about the balance about uh, with work and and life and uh, caring for uh, kids or uh, par elderly parents or uh, participating in other things in the community. Uh, it's a it's a difficult career, as you know. It's um, very time consuming, and um, the field of medicine for women has been much more open in terms of uh, specialties accepting women. You know, I think among their ranks and people being able to adjust job descriptions and tailor their profession to some of their needs at home, as you know. However, I think um, I think it's still hard, and I think there's still a lot of bias there, and. Um, uh, for example, um, a year ago I was actually on a show, the On Point show, uh, as part of an NPR show about um, the woman anesthesiologist who talked about part-time careers in medicine for women and how she thought that that was um, 
very negative and that it was a waste of resources to train women and, and then allow them to go part-time. It was very controversial. It made a huge splash. It was an op-ed in the New York Times. And um, it's nice to have a chance to talk about that again. Uh, I think that uh, women are uh, at a great dimension in medicine of, of warmth and understanding where our patients are in their lives, in their journeys. I think you know a lot of men uh, do that as well. But I think um, that it, it's um, I think it's a time of growth in medicine for women, and we're still trying to find our way in some ways. I think the most important thing is supporting each other in all of the different options that people choose, including uh, part-time work or full-time work or shared practices or every other model that you can think of. And, and that's one of the most important things, I think, in you know, women succeeding in medicine is being allowed to... Um, you know, change their direction as they need to to care for their families. What challenges have you had in being the mother of two, a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old, and also a doctor? Um, I think, you know, it's always it's deciding uh, how long to you know, stay at work and uh, how much more you can get done in a day or what's, what's for next year or uh, five years away. Um, it, I if I had worked harder, I could have published a lot more papers by now, for example. I could have a, a very big patient panel. Um, there's a lot more that you can always do. And um, I think you know, being able to feel comfortable with what you're doing and not look back and say, oh, I, I wish this or that. There'll always be opportunities, I think, to work and do more professionally. But when, um, you know, when, uh, when your kids are younger, it's also really nice to be there and be able to participate in the things that they're going through. And so um, getting home at the end of the day is, uh, you know, in a way, and feeling, uh, and feeling not completely overwhelmed by work is one of the most important pieces. Did you take into consideration the fact that you wanted to have children when you did this research tract and went and got a doctorate in public health? No, I think my plans were all a little unclear then, and I, I, um, I was thinking about um, my education and making sure that I uh, took the time to finish uh, all the education that I thought I needed at that time, and I was fortunate that I could kind of get that all done before I had kids. I, I, a lot of people do it the other way really successfully, where they start having kids in, in residency and, um, and find a way to make that balance work. Um, I think that would have been harder for me um, because um, I'm not sure just the kind of person I am, but uh, every, everybody, uh, I think, uh, needs to take into account you know, their, how much time they have uh, for family planning and what, what they want to accomplish in their careers. And again, there's, it's not a race. There's plenty of time, and uh, everyone has their own path, I think. Now, you have a medical degree and a doctorate in public health, and... Arguably, you could be employed anywhere at any of the big medical um, centers or training institutions in the country. Why choose Maine? I grew up um, in Hollowell, Maine, and so uh, it was coming home for me about 10 years ago. Uh, my husband and I were both in Boston uh, in medicine and decided that uh, we wanted to raise our family here. And um, the main health system has been uh, fantastic for me to be able to practice and do research. Maine Medical Center and Maine Medical Center Research Institute has been very supportive of uh, my research and has allowed me to um, 
kind of do everything part-time, you know, take care of patients and do teaching and do research. And that's, um, that's a wonderful thing. I think it might be harder at a major academic center where um, I think a lot of people are forced to kind of pick their path and um, spend the majority of their time as a clinician or maybe in uh, education or, or in research. It's very hard to strike that balance, I think. And does your husband also feel as if, um, also being in the medical field, as if he's able to strike a balance? I think so, yeah. I think um, I think he works full-time uh, as an endocrinologist. He's very busy. But I think um, being in Maine allows us to kind of be, be home at the end of the day uh, with our families and um, feel like we are accomplishing all our goals personally and professionally. How can people find out about the shared decision-making program that you're doing or the work that you're doing with um, colorectal cancer specifically? Um, they can visit the Maine Health website, um, which has a lot of materials about the things that we're doing with shared decision-making and, and uh, links to other places, including um, decision. some decision aids are available online. Also, the Informed Medical Decisions Foundation, which has funded the, some of the work at Maine Health. Um, has an excellent website, and um, it's Shared Decision Making Month, the month of March, 2013. So um, there, there are links to other materials there as well, and including some podcasts. And, and it's also, I believe, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month too. Yes. So this is appropriate <laughs> it's, that you're here talking to us. It's about good all alignment. This. Yes, that's yeah, Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. So it's a great opportunity for people to kind of think about. Uh, their screening options, whether they might want to be screened, and um, to find out about the choices. Uh, the Maine CDC has a program for low-income patients to uh, get screening, which is wonderful. It used to be only breast and cervical cancer screening. Um, through a lot of work uh, by others, this it was extended to include colorectal cancer screening. And uh, we've been fortunate in Maine to be able to have good access to a lot of um, cancer, uh, colorectal cancer screening options. I'm very pleased that you took the time out of your busy schedule to sit here and have this conversation with me today. I think it's been a while since I've seen you, so to know that you've gotten your doctorate in public health and you're a successful medical doctor and associate chief of medicine, clinical investigator at Maine Medical Center, um, it's very gratifying to spend this time with you, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 81, Caring for Community. Our guests have included Deborah Dietrich and Dr. Kathleen Fairfield. For more information on these guests, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, doctorlisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.com. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our show on Caring for Community. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, 
Booth, Maine. Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Apothecary by Design and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Courtney Taberge. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.